From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Information science and linguistics type work, that kind of thinking is actually really helpful. To be able to produce food in a way that you're going to sell a lot to a lot of people, there's a lot of organization that goes behind that. Having the creative desire and drive is one thing, but if you can't be organized and figure out how to get that stuff out, then you're, it's, you're going to have a hard time. This week on the show, we talk with the owners of Anaset Bakery and Coffee Market about how they stay organized. Renowned food scholar Julie Guthman talks about the challenges for strawberry growers in coastal California. We take a pie tour of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I share a recipe that's easier than pie. All that and more just ahead, so stay with us. Thanks for tuning in to Earth Eats. I'm your host, Kate Young. For Bloomington expats Jason and Nicole Evans Growth, who started their Raleigh-based bakery and coffee market in 2016, the key to success is only partially about baking tasty treats. The duo, who both have a background in information science, rely on their organizational and user experience skills to help the shop thrive. I'm standing with Nicole Evans-Growth in her sweet shop, Anaset, as she makes her way through rows in a Google um, spreadsheet. Chocolate chip cookies and contucci, which is a basically the Florentine version of biscotti. These sort of like She's running me through a production schedule for what she'll be prepping and baking throughout the week. Another spreadsheet serves as a kind of Rolodex of treat recipes. Nicole estimates that she's developed over 80 core recipes over the five years that she's owned her store. Um, but the nice thing about that is always having these things, these numbers in front of me, is I don't have to memorize it, which, you know, I could spend my brain time doing much more interesting things than just memorizing. So. For Nicole and her co-owner and spouse Jason, it's this high degree of organization and control that allows them to remain creative and confident in their work. And Nicole, who is a musician as well as a baker, has a metaphor for this. But every once in a while, every once in a while I'll measure something and it just happened to get the precise amount like on the first try. And I imagine that that's what it feels like to execute a guitar solo with your eyes closed. <laughs> Anaset is something of a Hoosier home away from home for me. I met Nicole and Jason many years ago in Bloomington, Indiana. We all moved to North Carolina around the same time when Jason and I both got jobs at NC State. Nicole had master's degrees in linguistics and information science from IU, and she'd been teaching in the Kelly School of Business. Um, K-201, the computer in business, teaching fresh-faced freshmen and sophomores uh, spreadsheets and databases and all that good stuff. And so it was doing all that The move to the Southeast in 2013 marked a new opportunity for Jason, but also Nicole, who loved to cook and bake and talk about food. She was looking for a career change. And so he took that job, we moved here to Raleigh, and I had been, I guess we kind of knew that there was some sort of food career that was gonna happen eventually. Gosh, how do I describe this? Um, I like to gamble. So I have no problem sort of forging ahead and hoping for the best. Soon after arriving in Raleigh, Nicole scored a job as confectioner at Videri, a local chocolate factory and store. 
At that time, she didn't exactly have a resume full of restaurant or hospitality experience. My very first job as a 15-year-old was at Long John Silver's. Just little jobs like that throughout college and high school and college. I did some sort of private catering for a while, catering friends, parties, and but other than that, no. It was more just learning stuff on my own at home. How did you, I asked her how, how she got that job. Hmm. Charm, I guess? I don't know. I don't know, it's probably obvious that I'd pay really good attention to food. Nicole thrived at Videri Chocolate Factory. In 2015, her recipe for a strawberry anise ganache even won a coveted Good Food Award for the Southeast. When she decided to branch out with her husband and start her own shop, she was paying tribute to this particular chocolate. So anisette itself is like a category of liqueurs um, flavored with anise that you find in places like Italy and Turkey, and you see those flavors used in sweets a lot there. And those places were absolutely inspirations for, um, you know, the kinds of items that we're making here. As Anisette prepared to open in 2016, Jason used skills that he'd acquired as a librarian to create systems and workflows for the store. He made Google Forms and spreadsheets for opening and closing procedures, inventory tracking, and even coffee extraction math. Nicole also found that her previous career skills were serving her well. Kind of doing like information science and linguistics type work, that kind of thinking is actually really helpful. I think in terms of like, to be able to produce food in a way that you're going to sell a lot to a lot of people, there's a lot of organization that goes behind that. And so I think having the, having the creative desire and drive is one thing, but if you can't be organized and figure out how to get that stuff out, then you're, you're going to have a hard time. It's all complex, but Nicole's core desire for the shop has always been simple. We want people to have beautiful food that is not in any way intimidating. We want you to come here and feel welcome. Maybe try something that, I, I don't think that anything that we're doing here is particularly, um, I don't know, innovative or weird or but we're at times using flavors that maybe aren't traditionally found in an American bakery in cakes or pies or whatever, and maybe reimagining you know, something that traditionally from an American bakery might taste purely like sugar and fluff and making it actually taste like something and presenting that in a way that they don't feel like, I don't know, that they don't feel intimidated. I visited Nicole at Anisette recently, where we immediately launched into what right now feels like a mandatory catch-up conversation, by which I mean intensely processing your experiences of the pandemic. Like stuff was happening around us and we were just moving. Because I, you know, I was like six, five sure that people Follow the rules and make sure you're wearing masks. And I know what you mean about like not remembering March because I was in for people. Totally. And it was just one thing after the next, after the next. After all the work to move to a new state, train in a new field, and open a business, Jason and Nicole had settled into a period of stability at Anisette. They were hosting concerts and DJ sets on the back patio and had even opened a second location. But in March of 2020, there were several small signs that things were changing. This seems like such a naive story now, but the first thing that happened earlier in that week is that we took away all of the like creamers and such that people would put in their coffee themselves. And 
I think moved all the seating outside and then eventually we, we thought well should we even have people sit outside so we took all the seating away also we got so busy Nicole's ability to gamble, to forge ahead, to be organized, to be creative, these were all immediately put to a new test. We suddenly had to figure out how, so I think there was maybe a week of people calling in to place their order. I don't know how we did that. We, I think all of us just sort of flipped a switch and we became robots. I don't know, I don't even really remember it, frankly. But yeah, so, so busy. And then also having to figure out how to get everything now online which of course we have information science background, so that was very helpful. I can't imagine how people who don't have that background did this and you know, switched to an online system. Over time, Anaset has adapted to the reality of COVID with all pickups taking place in their front parking lot. They've been lucky to make it through the worst periods of uncertainty. The average sales are considerably higher and we speculate that that has to do with the fact that you can sort of take your time in ordering, you can see everything online. The two owners used to spend a lot of time chatting with customers in the store about the day's menu, or maybe just a Donna Summer record that was playing through the speakers. An outdoor pickup model is not conducive to that same kind of lingering. And so they've recreated the vibe online for the time being, with Jason producing weekly and very campy menu videos. Pineapple glaze. Decadent, delicious, and vegan. Apple pie is local apples, a flavorful and sweet crumble, and a perfect flaky crust. A delicious take on the classic. Our quiche this week is potato and goat cheese. Order now, and we'll see you later this week. Now, as restrictions loosen and Anaset's staff is fully vaccinated, they've been able to start looking forward in a meaningful way, instead of just reacting and problem-solving. And once the patio reopens and they can host events again, Nicole is looking forward to leaving crisis management mode and getting back to her core mission for Anaset. It's like we're having a giant dinner party. <laughs> so welcoming people in, that's the idea. Making all of these things welcoming and inviting. That story comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie. Animal disease labs across the country stepped up to meet the need for COVID-19 testing. Because of their experience tracking animal diseases, the labs had the infrastructure to test and monitor the coronavirus. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports how these labs might play a role in preventing the next pandemic. Jana Mazette has seen her fair share of coronaviruses. Hundreds, hundreds of coronaviruses. For the past 10 years, Mazette was the director of the project called PREDICT. Its goal? Detect emerging diseases around the world that could transfer from animals to humans, called spillover events. Mazette says they happen all the time. Most novel diseases, emerging infections, um, jump from one species where they've evolved and they don't cause big problems into others. But in other instances, Mazette says the results can be bad. Sometimes things jump into livestock, cook along, and then jump into people or affect our food supply so devastatingly that it has a major effect on food security, 
um, you know, nutrition. These spillover events are why veterinary science and public health for humans are intertwined, and why animal disease experts could play a role in preventing the next pandemic. In the last 10 years, more than 70% of the emerging diseases that have affected humans have an animal component. That's Ken Burton. He's a coordinator for the National Bio and Agro Defense Facility, known as NBAF. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is working with Homeland Security to create a massive lab with the goal of preventing any emerging diseases that might threaten the food supply chain or agriculture industry. Burton says when the next pandemic rolls around, their facility could play a part in preventing it. It, it could provide a, a supporting role in future public health crises with relation to the basic animal research that's done and uh, diagnostics and countermeasure development, uh, in addition to training and, and response. Animal disease experts and the USDA were already involved in the COVID-19 pandemic. Labs like the Oklahoma Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab in Stillwater stepped up to expand testing capacity. It was like a wartime effort. That's Jerry Saliki, the director of the laboratory. His lab is part of a network working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture as a way to surveil animal diseases across the country. By last September, the lab ran 110,000 COVID-19 tests. Saliki says labs like his are used to large amounts of testing. Rarely does a period of five years go by without a major outbreak of a disease involving millions of one animal species. So we have that experience over a long period of time. Infectious diseases that spreads through livestock could be devastating for the agriculture sector. A current example is the African swine fever outbreak in China. Some areas of the country have lost at least half of their sows. Experts like John and Mazette think government facilities like NBAF play a role in preventing diseases, but there needs to be early monitoring and action to prevent diseases. We should have been ready and been watching for all these coronaviruses that we know uh, can jump species earlier, but even when it happens, then we waited weeks to actually months before the international community jumped in. So we need to have the, that early flag, respond quickly and largely, and then scale back when we get it under control or if it's not a, a real problem. NBAF wasn't up and running for COVID-19, but Burton says animal disease labs have a better roadmap for how to help during the next pandemic. Collaborations not only within the agricultural community, but also the crossover between the, the human side and the animal side is going to be extremely important going forward. NBAF is expected to open in October, but as Burton and other experts know, that could be critical to preventing the next pandemic. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. My name is Julie Guthman. I'm a professor of social sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Julie Guthman is a food scholar whose work has had a profound effect on much of my thinking about alternative food movements. Her 2011 book, Weighing In, challenges common approaches to the so-called obesity epidemic and has pushed me to examine the limits of interventions such as school gardens and farmers markets in transforming our food system. 
Julie Guthman visited the IU campus in the spring of 2019 and gave a keynote address at a conference called Critical Approaches to Superfoods. I invited her to the studio to talk about her recent work. The talk I'm giving is called The Problem with Solutions, and it's really motivated by this tendency I've seen, um, certainly in the tech industry, um, but also in kind of low-tech versions of efforts to transform food. It, so it reflects on this tendency to um, have solutions guide the problem. So we're seeing um, so many people come up with solutions that are politically palatable or um, excite them from farmer's markets to drones to monitor fields and and go looking for kind of problems to be solved. So I have a, a new research project on agriculture and food technology. And I've been going to all sorts of events where entrepreneurs are looking for venture capital to fund their inventions that, that are about new food products, new new products to help farmers farm. And I'm c constantly struck about how little some of these entrepreneurs seem to understand about the nature of food and agriculture. Her latest book released this summer is on the strawberry industry in California. The the strawberry work, um, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I just completed a book. It's called Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry. And it's, um, it's a culmination of maybe five years of research on the California strawberry industry. And what this book does is address how it is that the strawberry industry became so wedded to the use of highly toxic soil fumigants and how that use of fumigants ramified throughout the rest of the industry, making it really, really difficult to change. And, and it's animated by the problem that the, one of the many problems that the strawberry industry is facing, that the chemicals they've long been using are now facing tighter regulation. The issue with these chemicals is they were first introduced to address a suite of soil-based problems nematodes, weeds, but mainly soil-borne pathogens. And these pathogens early on in California's strawberry industry were hurting growers. They were seeing huge um, waves of blight where they were losing lots of crops. And the University of California got involved in trying to support farmers to address these pathogens. And they first developed a breeding program. But sometime in the late 50s, they started experimenting with various fumigants, and they use a combination of methyl bromide, which used to be a fire retardant, and chloropicrin, which is tear gas. And they, they found that a combination of that addressed the pathogen problem. And those two chemicals in combination became the uh, treatment of choice to address soil pathogens and weeds and much more. But methyl bromide is an ozone depleter and has been taken off the market because of the Montreal Protocol on ozone-depleting substances. And chloropicrin, um, they're still allowed to use, but with much tighter restrictions. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that so much of the way strawberries are produced has been developed with the assumption of the availability of those two chemicals to be available. So, for instance, strawberries, we often think of it as a seasonal crop, like in most parts of the country where they grow strawberries, to the extent they still grow them, there may be available in the market for three weeks. Mm -hmm. But California strawberries are in the market for nine to 10 months of the year. You know, there's certain regions in California where you can grow strawberries or you can be harvesting strawberries for at least six, if not eight months. And you can do it year after year. And those fumigants allowed growers to grow them year after year on the same block. So one of the things that happens is land values become calibrated on the assumption that you're going to be able to fumigate and, and harvest those strawberry plants year after year after year. So 
strawberry value, land values are very high, making it very difficult to pay rent unless you're getting that kind of yield. Right. In addition, there's a, the qualities of land that are really good for strawberries include um, sandy soils and the highly temperate weather of the coast of California. So most of the strawberries are grown within about three miles of the coast. It's cool in the summer because the breezes come off the, the Pacific Ocean. We call it the natural air conditioning of the Pacific Ocean. So summers are actually cool and foggy right by the coast. And so for the strawberries, it's eternal spring. And so they because they don't do well in super hot weather. Right. So you have the advantages of that particular climate are great for the strawberries, but it's also where people want to live. And so yeah. there's a lot of suburban development in these same areas. And so that's also putting pressure on land values. Then another issue you have is that plant breeding has been done with the presumption of fumigation. Mm -hmm. So even though the first plant breeding activities were to try to develop pathogen-resistant varieties, once there was fumigation, they no mm -hmm. longer had to do that. So they started breeding for size, for color, for shipability, mm -hmm. um, so they wouldn't perish. Um, for, uh, I mean, size and color, presumably, that's what consumers want. They didn't breed much for taste, except for <laughs> certain varietals. But now you have this problem where w there's these regulations and you can't fumigate with the same, the chemicals that have the same efficacy. In addition, there's been new pathogens appearing that hadn't been there before. So they're, they really need to find some pathogen-resistant varietals but they've lost some of the original germplasm, like the ancient germplasm that might have been more beneficial. So the strawberry genome itself has changed in, in relationship to the presumption of chemical fumigation. The strawberry genome itself has changed in response to the prevalent use of chemical fumigants. Before you go racing to the grocery store to stock your freezer with those giant, red, nearly flavorless strawberries, stay tuned. After a short break, we'll be back with Julie Guthman to get her sense of how urgent the strawberry problem really is. We are back with Julie Guthman of UC Santa Cruz talking about her research on strawberry growers in California. How immediate is this problem or crisis or whatever you want to call it for the strawberry industry? Are they having to make these changes right now? Or are we not going to see as many strawberries on the shelves? Like what's happening now and how quickly do they need to move and what kind of solutions are coming up? Well, that's a great question. The strawberry industry is facing a number of crises. It includes tighter regulation. It includes these new pathogens appearing that they don't really understand. It includes labor shortages, and mm -hmm. strawberry growers complain about labor shortages more than they even complain about fumigant regulation. Yeah. It includes high land prices and land scarcity, and it includes low prices for strawberries. So there's a lot of things bearing down on the strawberry industry, and the strawberry growers like to complain, and they do about all of those things. Already, this set of circumstances, strawberry growers are leaving. I mean, there's in the past few, few years, there's been reductions in acreage. So people are like, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. So that's already happening. Um, now, the kind of s solutions, so here we go to back to the <laughs> solutionisms. So the kind of, but there, this isn't solutionism, because there it actually is a problem, and they are looking for solutions. Yeah. So the solutions at hand really vary in terms of what, who will benefit or be hurt by them. And they range from finding 
and and getting approved through regulatory bodies less toxic replacements for these chemicals. Mm. That's what the strawberry industry most wants because it wouldn't really change up what they do. But so far, none have been developed that California's Department of Pesticide Regulation is willing to accept. So much of the research is in non-chemical alternatives. Or, or so, I mean, some biological pesticides, too, they've been looking at. But again, none are really ready to go. So they're, one thing they're looking at are non-chemical forms of fumigation. So like steam. Steam can kind of work, but it's expensive. You have to have steam machines going through, and it's very slow. They've also looked at solarization where they just put on plastic, mm-hmm. but the, it, it's not hot enough. Oh. So it work, I think it works in Israel in really, really hot climates, but it's just not hot enough there because you need to have a lot of heat to kill the pathogens. So the main thing they're looking at has been um, in the non-chemical treatments has been this thing called anaerobic soil disinvestation where they flood the fields with water and also add a, a carbon source like rice bran or molasses and cover it in plastic, and apparently that creates so much activity that it drowns out the pathogens. Wow. But it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, but it's had mixed results. I mean, so far, no one's really brought it up to scale of, like, several hundred acres. They've done it on a couple acres. And it's also, like, it's not chemical, which is good. It's not toxic, but it uses a tremendous amount of plastic and water in a drought-scourged state. We just had a rainy year, thankfully. But you know, lots of water is not good for California. And it's not even clear, like, the rice bran and molasses, where that would come from. And that could be grown under very toxic conditions. So there's that one. (laughs) And they're also looking at soilless substrate. This is a really interesting one. This is, like, not taking strawberries quite into greenhouses, but as of right now, they're putting soilless substrate as a medium for growing strawberries. So it could be coconut coir or peat moss, but it does it's not fertile soil. And they put it in waist-high trays, which is good for the harvesters. They don't have to bend over because strawberries are picking. It's really arduous. Crummy so work. it's it's creating a another soil environment that's not that's not soil, but it's still outside. It's, it's not, not so right because that's it's, the, the th- climate is great. Because <laughs> the climate's great, so that's exactly the thing. Is like there are people now growing strawberries in greenhouses. Like New Jersey has a, a huge greenhouse operations for all sorts of fruits and vegetables, but the California growers are not so excited about greenhouse operations because their biggest competitive advantages are the soil, even though it's now diseased, and, and the weather. Climate, so right yeah. now, they're, they're experimenting in the substrate, but these this expensive infrastructure. Yeah. And so there, so there's that. And then the third, the third um, obvious possibility is agroecological techniques, like using rotating strawberries with broccoli. Broccoli has mild fumigation qualities. And cover crops and compost and and many there are organic growers that successfully raise strawberries in these integrated systems, but they're not growing strawberries on the same block year after year. Right. And their strawberries are minor crop, and so and so you can't. They have to find cheaper land, or they have to find consumers that are willing to pay a lot more for these strawberries grown in those conditions. Now, some in the industry are like you know, aren't so concerned about these things. They're like, yeah, it's going to cost more and it's fine, but it's going to shake out all these people who really don't know what they're doing. And those of us who really know what are doing that are the most technologically sophisticated will rise to the top and that'll be fine. And we'll just get higher prices, which we want anyway. I think one of the social justice stories here, besides the work, which is significant, is that some of the newish growers 
are Latinx growers who were former farm workers or former field managers who've gotten into deep debt to grow strawberries. And those are the ones that are turning over year after year, ending up with lots and lots of debt. So a shakeout may be good in terms of for some growers, but there will be consequences for people who have tried to get into the strawberry business with a lot less capital. Where has this work taken you in terms of your own critical thinking about food systems and where this all fits into some of the other work that you've done? I mean, if I look back at all of my research, I think that I find myself really drawn to paradoxes and contradictions and impossibilities. Um, and maybe that's the outcome of having an actively critical mind. But I also think it's really reflects what I see on the ground. And I think that there's so much in food. I mean, I mean, food has gotten is galvanized so much public attention, and you know, there's food studies and food, food shows and food popular books. We know food is pervasive as like a, an object of interest, and I think that there's, I think there's, just, I don't know if it's an expectation, but certainly a hope that there's like easy solutions to everything, and and there's really just not. And I think that a lot of my work has been empathetically critical of alternatives as a way of addressing food systems. By that, I mean, I've been, I want to emphasize, empathetically critical of, you know, the farmers markets and the alternative food institutions and the community gardens and the farm to school programs as not doing enough to address the problems in the food system. They show us other ways of producing food and other possibly other ways of consuming food, but they don't fundamentally undermine the worst sorts of industrial food. And so my project on strawberries has really hit that home for me because I think the agroecological techniques of growing strawberries are important to know about, and it's important to have techniques that will work. But we can't get there unless we fundamentally undermine what is causing growers to continue to fumigate, et cetera. And it includes land values. And it includes um, research and extension systems that aren't really developing integrative sci- science. It's, it's It includes so many different things. It includes huge wealth disparities. Mm-hmm. So I keep on coming back to the same problem in o- almost all my work in that we cannot really change the food system until we change, until we fundamentally address the the pervasive problems of inequality and insufficient regulation and much more in, in the world writ large. Well, and this is also an interesting project because it's come about because of regulation. Like there was some successful regulation right. that right. happened right. in exactly. this industry that right. is what you want. And then here's... Here's what it looks like on the ground. But the good news is it's it's forcing growers to have to rethink what they do. And so that's how powerful regulation can be. So it's important. But then you have to you have to develop the tools too to farm in other ways. But even though even if these tools are coming available, like we have the problem of land values. We have the problem of, of consumers' expectations of cheap food and not because they're dumb, but because that's the economic realities in which they live and that they can't with low wages they need you know, cheap food is one of the ways that they have more wages. So it's so you can't you can't escape those realities. And so while we it, those of us who work in food and agriculture need to be certainly thinking about how to 
address the specific problems, we can't kind of move away from really thinking and acting on the bigger social structures. We can't move away from thinking about the bigger social structures. Julie Guthman never fails to look at the bigger social structures. It's what's so powerful about her work. We have more information on Julie Guthman and her work at eartheats.org. great comfort food, especially in summertime, with seasonal stone fruits like cherries, peaches, and, of course, all the berries. Making a pie is part baking, part art project, and part sharing love with those who end up eating the pie. Anyone who knows me knows that pie is important to me. My mom taught me how to make pie crust as her mom taught her. My grandmother had an elegant way of scoring the tops of her pies with a simple wheat design that my mom and I could never quite master. I've always been happy with my homemade pies, but it wasn't until I tried Mark Bittman's recipe and followed the instructions carefully that my pie-making skills moved to the next level. That was in 2006. Before that, I didn't really get how crucial temperature was to getting a flaky pie crust. Nowadays, I'm quite pleased with the texture and flavor of my pie pastry, and I really suffer if one doesn't turn out exactly right, which does happen occasionally, usually when I'm trying to impress someone. Because of my high pie standards, I don't usually order pie when I'm out, and I never bother tasting supermarket pies when they show up on a potluck table. But recently, a friend of mine suggested that she had visited Ann Arbor, Michigan, and explored the town through the lens of pie. At least that's what I thought she said. Maybe they just visited several bakeries. In any case, it sounded like a brilliant idea to me, so I tried it myself. In January of 2020, before the pandemic hit the U.S., my son was attending an orchestra program in northern Indiana, and Ann Arbor was close enough to visit. So I compiled a list of places in Ann Arbor featuring pies on the menu and headed out with my partner Carl in search of a pie pastry that was tender and flaky and full of flavor. First stop, Avalon Bakery in downtown Ann Arbor. Their motto is eat well, do good. Avalon boasts 100% organic flour. Looks like our pie is blueberry, though it does not say. Flavorful crust. Tastes like blueberry. But the filling really sets up nice without being gelatinous. And it has a crumble-type topping. Let me check the crust. I haven't really tried the crust yet. That crust is tender and flaky, and it has a really good flavor. I thought the flavor was excellent. You know what? I think this is 
mixed berry because I'm seeing something that looks a lot like a raspberry or a blackberry. Blackberry. The filling is quite sweet. It might be a little, a little too sweet for me, but I like it. How's the crust on the bottom? Well, it's not soggy. Definitely sturdy, but but it's not tough. It meets so much of the criteria that I have for a pie crust. For lunch, we decided on Zingerman's, an Ann Arbor destination for all foodies. It's something like a campus with several buildings featuring different types of food. We ordered savory pot pies. The top crust already, it's beautifully shaped and it looks flaky. This is a mushroom pot pie. The crust is so incredibly flaky, but tender in a way that... It's really yummy. It's so soft, it's so tender, it's incredibly flaky. It's got good flavor. And the mushrooms are just savory and herby. Nice gravy. Thing about it, these pies, they look small, but they're way too much for me to have for lunch, to have the whole thing. Next, we headed to a strip mall in the northeastern part of town, to Yoon's Bakery. It's a Korean bakery with French-inspired baked treats. Egg custard. This tart is more crumbly than flaky. Very short. It's a short crust. Mm, the custard is great. It's got a little lemoniness to it. The custard is about three-eighths of an inch thick. It's very delicate, creamy, delicious. Fruit tart, it's a custard base piled with raw glazed fruit, which is raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, and kiwi. Yeah, kiwi. This okay. one's sweet. It's like a cookie. More like a cookie, yeah. This is just one of those classic summer fruit tarts. I thought the egg custard was superb. Yeah. The fruit custard was really yummy too. Maybe wrong season to appreciate it fully. Yeah, it definitely the, feels the fruit, like the wrong season for this, but the fruit was good well though. done. Yeah. Pies from a company called Ackett's Handmade Pie Company are well known in Michigan. The Ackett's Pie Company was founded by Wendy and Dave Ackett's in 1996. The Ann Arbor Pie Shop is closed now, but wholesale production of the legendary pies continues from their bakehouse in Chesterfield, Michigan. We went to look for them at a fancy grocery store called Plum Market. At the time, we didn't have the correct pronunciation for the name of the pie company, so bear with us. I'm not seeing the Osh shops. There's Hot Cakes Bakery. Lilies. Here it is. Wonderful. So that looks like they've got four kinds. Apple, blueberry, fourberry. What I really want is the cherry, but there it is. it's so big. I think it's worth it to get the cherry. I would rather get this size. Oh, excellent. Perfect. Pretty cute. With the star in the middle. This pie is, is boxed, but from the outside through the cellophane, it sure looks delicious. We'll check back in with that adorable cherry pie later when we get around to tasting it. For dinner, we headed to Grand Traverse Pie Company. They originated in Grand Traverse County, Michigan, but now have 15 locations in Michigan wow. and Indiana. This is a so, proper pie company. Here we've made it to pie heaven. Cream pies. A uh, beef pot pie. Lemon meringue. Pumpkin. Pecan. Cheesecake. The, uh, the lemon meringue is quite stunning. Yeah, the lemon meringue is beautiful. It's otherworldly. It's exotic uh, alien creature. Beef pasties. Chicken pot pie, beef pot pie. Okay, so, if I may, 
Our choices are lakeshore berry, apple blueberry cherry, strawberry rhubarb, peach, mountain berry, apple crumb, blueberry peach, cherry, blueberry, and then Quiche varieties. Quiches. Ooh. I think I want... What's quiche Lorraine? It's like cheese of some sort, maybe Swiss cheese. I'm not sure. And ham and spinach. That's what I think. I'm thinking I would get the Mediterranean feta. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. Is it a full quarter of a quiche? It looks like a full quarter of perhaps a small yeah. pie. Ooh, very delicate. Tastes as though it's been reheated, which of course it has. Mm, it's got really good flavor, but texture-wise it's a bit saturated, probably because of the reheating. It's nice and flaky, it's just not, it has no crunch. It, too oily or something. It's still really good and the, the quiche filling is quite good. I'm not feeling good about the ingredients that I'm seeing here. <laughs> I guess they're a big pie company. Palm and soybean oil, palm and palm kernel oil, vegetable mono and diglycerides, sodium benzoate. Yeah, just a lot of extras. I'm looking for butter, flour, sugar, and salt. Okay, now I'm going to try the turnover. I consider this to be like a hand pie. The pastry is very much a pie crust pastry. It's not a puff pastry. And this is a raspberry. The flakes are just falling off of it. Again, the crust is very flaky, but it also has a little bit of that saturated feeling, and maybe it's because I read the ingredients but it doesn't taste as natural. But it also doesn't taste like a supermarket pie. I mean, the crust is well-crafted. It's just not well-crafted with butter. And the Yacht Rock in the background. <laughs> Back in our hotel, it was time to sample the final pie of the day that Ackett's cherry pie we picked up earlier. This is a double crust cherry pie. The crust is a bit thick. It's a bit thick and underbaked, I think. Not as flaky. Not as flavorful either. Not as tender. The filling is nice. The filling is really good. This is the sixth piece of pie we've had today. No, seventh. I think that might've been too many pies in one day for me. It definitely was. <laughs> so, lesson learned. While a pie tour was certainly a fun way to explore a town, like most good things, pie is best enjoyed in moderation. They're a rustic freeform pie where you skip the pie pan and simply fold your pie pastry around the fruit filling, leaving an open middle. 
I appreciate their simplicity and the way they maximize crunchy pie crust edges and avoid the dreaded soggy bottoms of juicy fruit pies. I've made strawberry rhubarb, and last week I made one with a mix of service berries and gooseberries for the filling. It's so easy. Here are the steps. Make the pie dough in the morning, and we have a recipe and instructions for that on eartheats.org. Wrap it in plastic and stick it in the fridge to chill for several hours. Mix the berries with sugar and maybe some cornstarch. You can mash them up, slice them, or keep them whole. Preheat the oven to 450 degrees. Then roll out the chilled dough into a rough circle. Transfer it to a baking sheet. Pile the berries and sugar mixture in the middle and fold the edges of the pastry over the circle of fruit, leaving at least half of it exposed. Then brush the pastry with milk or cream, sprinkle sugar over it, and bake it in a preheated 450 degree oven for 15 minutes. Reduce the heat to 375 and bake another 15 or 20 minutes or until the crust is a deep golden brown. Allow to cool for 15 minutes or so before serving with a scoop of vanilla ice cream or whipped cream. Find photos and details at eartheats.org. If you are a visual learner, check out the Earth Eats YouTube channel. We've got videos on pie crust making and galette shaping. Just search Earth Eats on YouTube and please subscribe. Last year, the COVID-19 pandemic forced many small towns to cancel large festivals that they depend on for tourism. As some communities are holding these festivals again, Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikus reports what this means for small towns. People wearing traditional Dutch clothing are throwing buckets of water onto the street. It's part of the Orange City Tulip Festival celebrating the small Northwest Iowa town's Dutch heritage. That's right, give them a round of applause. Locals scrub the street to pave the way for this year's elected Tulip Queen and her court. Feels refreshing to be back doing something that we love. Brandy Pals watches the parade with two of her friends. They're all locals who volunteer at the three-day celebration. This is the Tulip Festival's 80th year. The town had planned to mark that milestone last year, but it got canceled that spring. And that was a blow to the town. Orange City's population is 6,100, but the festival draws in at least 80,000 people from around the world. Mike Hoffman with the local Chamber of Commerce says it's a big gain for the town, but it's hard to say how big. You can't put a finger on the fact that people come back and experience the small businesses throughout the course of the year, not just during the festival. A little while after the parade, people sit in the Dutch bakery enjoying pastries. And then one Dutch leather. Small businesses like this make a lot of their yearly income from the festival. The bakery's owner, Lauren Mulder, says the money his business makes over these three days equals about two to three months of normal income. It probably makes or breaks our year. Without it, yeah, it would be more difficult for us to survive, basically. Mulder says last year was tough. After the pandemic forced restaurants and other retail to close, he had to lay off some employees. 
Dutch Bakery did curbside pickup to stay afloat. While pastries are definitely a draw, most people come for the tulips. More than 30,000 bulbs are planted around Orange City in the fall. By festival time, the bright colored flowers are in full bloom. Carrie Dresser points out a couple of her favorites in her yard, a pink tulip with some yellow and an orange tulip. The Blushing Beauty and the Onino, they're just a big, giant tulip. They always bloom beautifully. Carrie co-owns Tulip Town Bulb Company with her husband, Dan. They import bulbs from the Netherlands and plant about 3,000 for the festival. People visit the dressers to pre-order bulbs for their own yards and gardens. They say tulips are pretty easy to care for. People that can't garden, you can grow tulips. You can plant them completely incorrectly and upside down and they We've will, heard people. they'll turn themselves over and push themselves through and yeah. they're pretty resilient. Stain Muckow and his family admire the tulips. They moved from Portugal to the U.S. last year and drove an RV six hours from Minnesota to Orange City. We wanted to get out and she wanted to come and see this down here. And now that we have the RV, we're camping every weekend and, and going out. Orange City isn't the only town that holds a big Dutch festival. About four hours away in central Iowa, Pella's tulip time is a huge economic booster. Valerie Van Coten is with Pella Historical Society and Museums. Tulip time brings in two to three million dollars to a 30 mile radius of Pella to the restaurants and the hotels. Van Coten says tulip time saw around 160,000 people this year, fewer than a normal year, but more than expected. She says last year's canceled festival had a silver lining. A lot of people realized, oh, wow, if tulip time were to go away, it would really hurt this community. And that's something a lot of towns have realized. Their businesses, and sometimes much of their economy, depend on these big festivals. Katie Pikus, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Earth Eats is produced on the campus of Indiana University. We wish to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University Bloomington is built. Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Julie Guthman, Jason and Nicole Evans-Groth, and Carl Pearson. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.